Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We've gone a bit demob happy in anticipation of the holidays here on Inside Europe. So deck the bows because everyone's a winner, or should that be singer, in Spain's Christmas national lottery draw. Also, Christmas is coming early to Ukraine, and when it comes to festive feasts, nobody does it quite like Norway. And then, of course, you have lutefisk, which is the weirdest thing on the menu, you can call it, but uh, either you love it or you hate it. Uh, a lot of people have bad experiences because if you don't make it right, it can be a little bit jelloey because it's been lying in basically poison. Christmas is nearly upon us, and in Spain, that can only mean one thing. It's time for El Gordo, the big one. No, I'm not talking about Santa, but about the annual Christmas National Lottery draw, which takes place on December 22nd. Bit of a anticlimax, you're thinking? Well, get this. El Gordo has a tradition going back two centuries and a combined jackpot of two and a half billion euros, making it the richest lottery in the world. Also, schoolchildren sing out the lottery numbers. Honestly, that really is a thing. Here's our Madrid correspondent, Ashish Sharma, to explain it to us. It's break time and I'm here at one of the many state schools in Madrid. This one is called San Idalfonso. Children are running about, some playing football, one group on some climbing frames and another happy to follow their playground monitor around. Seems like a normal school. But the San Alfonso is a bit special. Every year students from this school, who are 12 years or older, are selected to sing the Christmas National Lottery. The event goes out live on Spanish television just before Christmas Day. Singing the lottery has been a tradition from this school which goes back over 200 years. The San Ildefonso is the second oldest school in Madrid and started life back in 1543, providing education to orphans and abandoned children. Well, I've come along today to rehearsals taking place of some of the children who will be singing this year. The school has one part which offers lodgings from Monday to Friday for children who are not able to stay at home during the week. This could be due to financial reasons, single parents or simply parents who have hours which make it difficult to look after their kids during the week. The children selected to sing come from these lodgings. The lottery is a stamp of identity for the school. Because the children of San Ildefonso have now been offering the service for many generations, bringing a lot of happiness to many people. That's Maria Carmen Jimenez, director of the residential part of the school. Anthony is rehearsing today and he's going to be singing for the first time this year. Last year he took part, but his role was selecting the balls which had the ticket number and the prize amount. Two students then sing on stage. One sings the ticket number, the other the amount of money that ticket is won. And they all hope that they get to sing the jackpot prize of 4 million euros, known as El Gordo, the fat one. When you pick the balls, you're at the back, behind the scenes. 
It's very different when you're singing. I suppose I'm a bit scared in case I make a mistake. But I wanted to sing because I think it's really cool and I like it. And also, my brother couldn't sing, so I wanted to sing for him and for me. And of course, my family is very proud that I'll be singing the lottery. It also makes me happy to think that I could play a part in helping families win some money. The children are not chosen so much for their singing, but for their ability to read numbers well and fluently, and the pairings are decided by voices that complement each other. The audition takes place in October, and when everything is decided, that's when weekly rehearsals begin. I've seen changes in a lot of boys and girls, which is the most wonderful thing. Children who were so shy that they could barely speak in public have been capable of going on stage at the Royal Theatre, singing in front of everyone and doing it well. I've cried with emotion at seeing the development and the opportunity given to many of them thanks to this lottery. The process is inclusive and students who want to sing but don't get picked are encouraged to come back and try the following year. Two best friends, Natalia and Paula, will be singing together. They took part last year, but 13-year-old Paula says it will be more special this time round to sing with her friend. It's happened we, because one day um, Natalia and me, I, we, uh, we practiced with um, an educator, and she said, uh, you are singing uh, very good. And other day, when it's going to select the person that is going to the Christmas lottery, Say, Natalia and Paula is, is, uh, is singing very good. I have a memory with her and I say, Natalia, come with me to practice to say that we sing very well. Número 5490. Premiado con 4 millones de euros en cada serie. The Christmas lottery is watched by millions on TV as it goes out live from the National Theatre here in Madrid. And while most enjoy watching the children sing, in reality everyone is just hoping that their ticket number gets to win El Gordo. Which reminds me, I still haven't bought mine. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. Yeah, I was kind of hoping that Ashish was going to sing his own sign-off there, but I guess there's always next year. One thing is for certain, though, Spain's Christmas lottery draw is a triumph of marketing, and that is precisely the area of expertise of Anastasia Badachenko, CEO of IAB, or Interactive Advertising Bureau Ukraine, a non-profit specialising in digital standards and brand health. Now, you might remember Anastasia from an interview that we did with her last year, when she was explaining the guerrilla marketing techniques her organisation was employing in a bid to puncture Putin's propaganda bubble. At any rate, if there is one person who understands a thing or two about messaging, then it is Anastasia. So I called her up in Kyiv to get a sense of what Christmas means to Ukrainians nearly two years into an unrelenting war for both personal and national survival. Had Christmas come to the capital, I asked. I think that our city authorities try to keep a kind of Christmas mood despite all these uh, risks and air raid sirens because uh, in December we have a lot of air raid sirens and it is the main 
problem of our autumn and winter, I could say. If we try to keep this uh, Christmas mood in our hearts, and uh, the, as for me, for me, the main lesson of war was uh, to understand the value of every moment. That is why if there is no bombing, it's a good day. If it is Christmas or any holiday, it's a good day. Let's feel it, let's love it. Because uh, war brings us feeling that life is could be very short. Uh, th- that is why we keep this Christmas mood in our heart despite, hearts despite all this terrible, uh, terrible war we have and our, our country and our people have. The previous uh, week uh, we have dramatic experience uh, because we have industry discussion in uh, TV studio and it was the first time we have um, this airing during the air raid sirens. And uh, it was a very risky type of air raids. It was um, mix, six mix uh, in the air. And uh, they have uh, very dangerous uh, rockets uh, called Kinjals uh, that reach any target uh, in the, at the territory of Ukraine because they're like ballistic or air ballistic. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but they're very quick and very, very destructive. That is why uh, we feel a little bit afraid of, uh, but uh, we finished this airing and this life with the words of uh, uh, thank you uh, to our air defense guys and thank them um, very much because uh, actually they give us possibility in a wartime, in a very dangerous place to have airing uh, on our industry questions. So I, I, I repeat that our hope is on our air defense guys and our armed forces. I mean, those are incredibly powerful messages. And I, I feel that sort of Christmas messaging, you know, even in peacetime, it's about love and togetherness and family and sharing that sort of time together. But the Ukrainian advertising industry is tapping into uh, yeah, a sort of a pool of emotion where those things are just so fraught because so many families are grieving or are separated. What kind of messages are resonating? How is the industry treading that tightrope? As for communication messages, most of them are, are as for me, typical. For example, uh, New Year or Christmas, they are typical, but uh, they have some signs of wartime. For example, uh, a lot of have the special link or QR codes for donation for charity funds or armed forces uh, or uh, promises uh, to donate uh, some uh, certain percent of uh, sales revenues uh, to charity. It's like a scars of war on advertising. But um, mostly strategically, uh, the holiday uh, communication messages are almost the same uh, that we have three or five years ago. They are typical New Year or Christmas communication, despite the war. There's a big difference in Ukraine this year, and that is that normally Ukrainians would be celebrating Christmas on uh, January 7th in line with the Orthodox calendar. This year it's been moved to December 25th. Why is that and what kind of a difference does it make? As for me, it makes actually a little difference, but uh, some disputes uh, about this uh, day changing uh, are still active, uh, mostly um, with some religious people. Uh, but um, 
As for me, it's actually no problem, but uh, more possibilities for marketers uh, to sell uh, more goods, more gifts, uh, and uh, actually uh, to, to, to double their sales. <laughs> I suppose also from a government perspective, it, it's um, what in the advertising world might be known as a rebranding exercise, isn't it? Because it's very much aligning the Ukrainian calendar with the other countries in Europe and removing it from Russia. Uh, yes, uh, I think that it's a good, uh, good rebranding move. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, it's a time of Christmas messages, and I, I've I've got you here. <laughs> You've got a platform. Is is there perhaps a sort of a Christmas message, maybe a Christmas card, if you like, that you would like to send to somebody? If you you had this chance to sort of send a send a, a message at this moment, who would it be to? What might you say? Uh I suppose it's an obvious word, but pray for peace, uh, because when we have war, uh, we deeply understand and uh, feel actually by all our skin and heart the value of peace, the true value of peace. In deep of our heart, uh, all of us want peace, and we, I could wish to to, to have this peace all over the world. It's the most important message I have, peace for all the planet. Anastasia Baidachenko is CEO of IAB, or Interactive Advertising Bureau Ukraine. The Christmas tree may still be twinkling on Kiev's Sofia Square, but the grim reality is that this year, once again, soldiers will be spending the holiday season in trenches dug out of European soil. Earlier this year, we spoke to the Ukrainian literary scholar Tatyana Ogakova about the hope that she takes from the work of the 19th century Ukrainian poet Lesya Ukrainka. We'd like to share that tribute with you now. For me, Lesya is, is the founder of what we are and what we'd like to become. It was a prodigious woman speaking in many foreign languages and representing this intellectual tradition. She was in close dialogue with European history, with European tradition, but at the same time, she uh, was so deeply Ukrainian, you know, and she was just providing us with this possibility to link both, you know, Ukraine to, to European tradition, to ancient, to Greek tradition, for example. And I would say that her life could be an example, you know. Геть ти думай, ви хмари осінні, тож тепер весна золота. Чи то так у жалю у голосінні проминуть молоді літа? Ні, я хочу крізь сльози сміятись. Thoughts away, you heavy clouds of autumn. For now springtime comes, a gleam with gold. Shall thus in grief and wailing for ill fortune all the tale of my young years be told? No, I want to smile through tears and weeping, sing my songs where evil holds its sway. Hopeless, a steadfast hope forever keeping, I want to live your thoughts of grief away. In the long dark ever viewless night time, not one instant shall I close my eyes. I'll seek forever for the star to guide me. 
She that reigns bright mistress of dark skies. Yes, I'll smile, indeed, through tears and weeping, sing my songs where evil holds its sway. Hopeless, a steadfast hope forever keeping, I shall live, your thoughts of grief, away. That tribute to the iconic Ukrainian poet Lesya Ukrainka was by Tatyana Ogakova, literary scholar and head of international outreach for the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. It was originally broadcast as part of our Women of Europe special, which won two gold medals at this year's Signal Awards. One of those medals was a listener prize. So thank you so much once again to all of you who voted for us. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Our festive programme resumes in just a minute. That's here on Inside Europe. English football fans like to chant, it's coming home. Well, that is exactly how Norwegians feel about Christmas. And to be fair, the word Yule is Old Norse for the marking of midwinter celebrations that predate the birth of Christ. Also, they've got a whole host of food-related Yule traditions, and the gusto with which they celebrate has something distinctly Viking-esque about it. Or so Lars Bavanga claims, at any rate. <laughs> Let me just start with a warning to any children listening. Yes, some Norwegians do eat reindeer at Christmas, but other and slightly stranger dishes are far more popular. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Thomas Broughton is the manager at Stortorvets Gjestiveri, one of Oslo's oldest restaurants. They serve some 15,000 Christmas meals in the run-up to and during Christmas – Belly pork served with sausages, sauerkraut and potatoes tops the bill. But other much older traditions linger, explains Thomas. Like pinnesjöt, loosely translated to stick meat. Which is uh, salted dried lamb. And then of course you have lutefisk, which is the weirdest thing on the menu, you can call it. But uh, either you love it or you hate it. Uh, a lot of people have bad experiences because it, if you don't make it right, it can be a little bit jello-y. Because it's been lying in, basically, poison. Yes, poison. Lutefisk is dried cod that traditionally was soaked in water and ash to regain its moisture. Now, water and ash become lye, also known as caustic soda. But fear not, the fish is thoroughly rinsed before being served. Think that is strange? Well, you should try rakfisk, trout that has been left to rot. It has a lot of the... Either you like it or you don't kind of thing. But then again, it's it's not that different, I think, to smoked salmon in a way. But yeah, it's basically rotten fish. But it doesn't look that rotten. 
Both the Pinachet dried lamb ribs, Lutefisk dried and re-soaked cod, and Vrakfisk fermented trout stem from a time before refrigeration when other methods were needed to keep the food from going off. Well, except for the Vrakfisk, which has gone off in a way. My name is uh, Tor Andreasen. I'm uh, working as a chef at Stortorget. Chef Tor Andreasen has been making Christmas dinners at restaurant Stortorget for 11 years. The most special is uh, definitely the, the lutefisk. It came from um, stockfish. Basically, it's the uh, dry cod. You don't know when it started with the lut. Lut is Norwegian for lye, by the way. You know, that caustic soda. I, I read about it yesterday. It's from 1500 something. It's the first time that actually someone re- wrote down how to do it. Before they used water and uh, ash, now they use caustic soda. So that, that sounds like basically you're poisoning the food. Yeah. Basically, but it's way better than that. Most of the Christmas dinners served here are for business Christmas parties, known as Julebud in Norwegian, direct translation, Christmas table. A lot of uh, businesses are taking all their employees out on a good night. Usually it's often quite uh, high consumption of uh, beer and uh, other alcoholic uh, beverages. It, it can get quite lively. Yeah, I, w- I would say that. You, uh... <laughs> Beer and aquavit are the drinks of choice, aquavit being Norway's version of whiskey, brewed on potatoes and flavoured with spices. This year, one in two Norwegians have said they'll attend a julebud, and 70% of them are celebrating with colleagues. I catch up with one of them who's actually chosen rotten fish as a starter. I think it was once I was... Forced to eat it out of politeness. Uh, and I, I had a taste, and it was not that bad, really. But the other thing with it is, like, with a lot of Norwegian Christmas food, there's a lot of toppings and trimmings uh, that kind of covers the taste, too. <laughs> so it's the total experience where you basically have to have all the other ingredients that kind of even is out. And then it's not too bad. Yes, if you thought eating cod was the healthy choice, think again, says manager Thomas Broughton. Uh, and even the lutefisk is quite heavy because you have bacon on it and stuff like that. So there's nothing delicate about those dishes. Me, myself, I'm usually in some sort of food coma when I'm done with it because it's so heavy. It takes so much energy of your body to consume it. Lars Bevanger, DW, Oslo. I'm feeling pretty stuffed myself after all that. I think I might just manage to cram in a word for our podcast. However, it is available on all the usual platforms. And that now includes DW's new podcast channel on YouTube, where you will find us alongside other programmes like this one. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart and I'm travelling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. No need to pack your bags, just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And the same, of course, goes for the Inside Europe podcast. A big thank you to all of you who have left us five-star ratings, likes or reviews over the past year. We really are so grateful for these because they help us to grow our audience and to reach more people with our European stories. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. listening to Inside Europe. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. It is Christmas and that can only mean one thing. Yep, after a whole year of waiting and um, actually I'm just speaking for myself here since this is genuinely one of my favourite parts of the job, it is once again time for the Inside Europe Christmas ring round. That's when I get to call up correspondents in different countries and have a festive chat. This year, the twist is that I've asked everyone to think of something that's given them joy this past year. And I am really looking forward to the responses. Let's try Lisa Louis in Paris first. Let's see if she's picking up. Hello. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you, Kate? I am very well, yeah. Am I speaking to Lisa Louis in Paris? Yes, that's it. Is Paris in full festive swing? Well, you know, I always felt, since I've arrived here in 2005, I've always felt that they don't really know how to celebrate Christmas. You know, there's just not enough decoration and glamour. I didn't have you down as a sort of tinsel and glitz person at all. Well, no, but, you know, I just love the the very commercial feeling of Christmas, you know, with all the, li- <laughs> the lights. <laughs> and it just reminds me of my childhood. I grew up in Marburg, which is in the centre of a small town in the centre of Germany. And it was always, you know, a very uh, nice time. I did not know that about your background. So this is why you're such a polyglot, because there must be a French. I mean, Lisa Louis, it must be like you must be genuinely French as well, right? No, I'm 100% German. I did not realise that. Yeah. How did you end up in France? Well, I went there because, uh, well, I arrived here because I did a double diploma with my former University of Münster and they, uh, I was studying economics. And then I had a look around and there was this uh, very well-known, recognised private journalism school, which is called Centre de Formation des Journalistes in Paris. There was an opportunity to apply as a foreigner and I got in. So I did that. Sorry, this is going on forever. I know it's a very long story. <laughs> this is vast. This is such a European story. <laughs> and then wh- once I got through it and once it was finished, I thought all that and then going back to Germany, it doesn't really make sense. So 
I decided to stay on and here I am, you know. Sorry, just don't want to get hang up on this name thing. But you you do pronounce your last name Louis, don't you? Not Louis. So, or have I been mispronouncing your name all this time? <laughs> Everybody asks me that every time I go on air. So the only reason why I'm saying please pronounce it Louis in English is because if you say Louis as you normally pronounce it in German, then English speakers tend to ha- um, put an E at the end. You would rather be sort of misread as French than misread as extremely girly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't believe we've worked together all this time and I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. I feel really bad now. But there's something There's something else. You see, I, I have been doing a bit of research and there is something that I feel that I do know about you that gives me a little window into your secret soul. And this is because when I said to you, look, Lisa, we'd really, really like to talk to you for the Christmas ring round because you've been such a trooper for the show. Come, come, come join us. You, Your response was, mm, I'm quite a serious person. I don't know if I'm the person to ask. And then... And then I saw this video and you're going to have to describe what it is. <laughs> I didn't really say I'm a serious person. I might have said I'm not that much of a cultural person. I'm I'm not, you know, walking from going from one theatre to the next. But there is something and that's what you saw in the video that I really love when I'm not on air and I'm not writing and I'm not doing radio reports. And that is dancing, it's salsa dancing. So you saw me dance, uh, you know, that night, I must say, I was really full of energy. Cubans would kill me if I said salsa dancing because they call it casino. So you're not, you're not going from sort of Parisian theatre to Parisian theatre, but you are sort of flitting from Parisian bar to Parisian bar doing Cuban salsa dancing. Yeah, I'm invading the dance floors, I think. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, the, the video that you saw, it's extraordinary. I mean, you've got such movement and like what really, and you're, you're quite a tall person. And what's amazing is that the movement comes from your shoulders. <laughs> yeah, it's what they call isolation. So you need to isolate different parts of your body, you know. So you move your shoulders without moving anything else. You can move your chest and you can move, obviously move your hips. And I just love delving into this isolation body movement, you know, and just move to the music. And and then I don't think of anything work-related, which is really nice. Amazing. I saw, I don't know, like three minutes of mobile phone footage, if that, and you were in this absolutely packed bar, and yet you looked as though you were sort of completely, completely in your own zone. I mean, you didn't tread on anybody's toes. You were just like totally in the groove. <laughs> You're very kind. You're being very kind there. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, I can't dance at all. So I'm always very, very, very impressed by people who can. But genuinely, it was quite something. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think I think when you dance, you know, that's the big advantage of when you go dancing, you are in your own bubble. And then I've been dancing since 2017. So I started salsa dancing back then. And the more you dance, and I'm still taking lessons, and I think I will take lessons my whole life because, I mean, as long as I'm dancing, because I just love the fact that there is so much to learn and it never ends. And the more you progress, the more you actually kind of can control how you dance, where you dance. You, when it's really packed, you, your steps are smaller, you know. You're very centred in yourself. You're very whole. You feel very whole. I mean, it's not a coincidence that there's something called dance therapy. It is like therapy. You go back to, you know, who you are, to your person, to 
how you feel in your body and you're just completely present in the moment. And there is no such thing as breaking news when you're on the dance floor. You know? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, happy Christmas, Lisa. Well, I hope to meet you on the dance floor in the future. Ah, oh, now there's a challenge. That's the New Year's challenge. <laughs> I think that Lisa Louie, or should that be Lisa Louise, probably knows that I'm not going to take her up on that offer because I know my limitations and dancing's definitely where they kick in. I better get myself back on solid ground. So, uh, oh, solid ground. Yeah, yeah. Let's call Thomas Sparrow in Berlin. Hello, Thomas Sparrow. Hi, Thomas. How are you doing? Hello, Kate. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Do you have snow in Berlin? It is snowing and I would actually love to be now in my vegetable garden, but instead I am in the office. Okay, I've still got a good view, but it's not as good as in my garden. You are on topic as always, because I did want to talk to you about your garden because I knew, I knew, I knew that this was a really big part of your life because the first time that we ever met in person, which was shockingly recently, it was this year, it was in the summer, do you remember? It was at the Global yes. Media Forum. Right, you were hobbling around on crutches and it was a garden yes. injury? <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing to have to admit this, but... Yes, I broke my ankle while gardening. Can you believe that? <laughs> so I remember you telling me that and I was like, no, 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 you, you've got to improve your story. You need to have at least been install <laughs> installing like aquaponic shark tanks or something. <laughs> the good news is that I'm basically recovered. I was able to continue with my gardening and... That has actually helped me a lot in the last few months. I was going to say, gardening's supposed to be relaxing. How are you managing to get injured? No, it is relaxing. I mean, I, I want to first say I normally talk to you as a political correspondent, but I am now also, let's say, your gardening correspondent. Um, <laughs> gardening has become in the last few years really a passion for me since we managed to get a small garden outside of, of Berlin. And I was trying to actually think why it is such an interesting thing for me, why it is something that gives me so much peace. And I happen to realize that during the week, I'm actually concerned about discussing big political events, stories about I don't know, complex weapon deliveries to Ukraine or Germany's uh, budget chaos. My main concern at the weekend, especially during the summer, is how to get rid of the snails that are eating my vegetables or now in autumn, how to get rid of all the acorns that are falling from the oak trees and that are basically a pain to get rid of if you're going to rake all the leaves. So it's actually a nice a nice change. You go from complex weapons systems during the week and parliamentary discussions to having a, a snail as your main goal at the weekend. This is really interesting. This is a theme this year. I think this probably says quite a lot about the state of the world. And um, the last person I spoke to was uh, Lisa uh, Louis in uh, Paris. And she, she salsa dances for the same reason. It's about finding something where you're completely tuned out of uh, what's going on in, in the sort of the world of, of politics, current affairs. Absolutely, because during the week, you're sitting trying to understand what is actually happening. And there is a lot happening. 
And it's something that that really affects you also, well, in your head mostly, but because journalism is also something that where you have to think a lot. Whereas if you're gardening, you actually get your hands filthy, dirty. You're actually on your knees. You're sort of fiddling with, I know, weed or gardening with plants. You're trying to understand how they how they work. And by the way, it's not only something that we journalists uh, do and that we journalists like. I remember reading some time ago that former German Chancellor Angela Merkel also used to to basically go to her garden where she grew up and, and weed. This is the only context in which I have ever heard you compare yourself to the former Bundeskanzler <laughs> Thomas. King, you could have got King Charles in there because he's supposed to sing to his tomato plants, allegedly. Well, I don't know if the tomato plants then are actually still healthy or if they suffer when King Charles sings to his uh, tomato <laughs> plants. But let's say, <laughs> I'll take that as a, as a tip. I am a terrible singer, but next year when my tomato plants... Uh, are growing, I will try to sing to them and I'll report back to you, Kate, to see if they actually... Uh, <laughs> you're making me laugh. <laughs> if, if they yeah, actually survive. Is, you know that I'm recording this, right? <laughs> you, you may be held to this promise. <laughs> we'll talk next summer and I'll tell you how my tomatoes uh, We'll grew. get you to report yeah. live from the greenhouse. <laughs> I'll sing. Do, do I'll you sing. compost? Yes. Have you? Sorry, I'm not trying to gross you out, but it's a genuine question. Have you, have you ever used a compost toilet? No, I've never used a compost uh, toilet. It is very basic where where we have our garden, but uh, no, I have never used a compost toilet. So I love them. So any any chance I get to use a compost toilet, I do because you, no, but seriously, I think it's sort of something to do with the the way in which we live. And you know, I, I live in a city, so this is probably um, magnified. But you know, you, it's really easy to get this sense of us as a species, really, as being sort of um, parasitical on nature. And then when you're using a compost toilet, you are you know literally and directly sort of giving back and helping things grow. <laughs> and you you feel really part of a cycle. And I imagine that gardening is is similar. Look, I, just as you never imagined that I would compare myself to Angela Merkel in terms of gardening, and you probably never thought that we would end up talking about singing to our <laughs> tomato plant, I never thought that you would end up talking to me about compost toilets. But here we go, on Inside Europe, we get to talk about everything. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I hope my family aren't listening to this because they'll probably be dreading my my mealtime conversation this Christmas. So, <laughs> uh, actually, my mum's a trooper. She she was very skeptical, but I, I have um I have convinced her um a couple of holidays ago to try a compost oh. toilet. <laughs> well, I haven't tried a compost toilet, but next year I'll try a compost toilet and I'll try to sing to my to my tomatoes. Uh, amazing. Listen, can you maybe give me um, a couple of concrete gardening tips to be going away with? What would, what would your top tips for the garden be? I would avoid experimenting a lot without knowing how you're experimenting because things can go awfully wrong. At the same time, I would try and go out of your comfort zone and maybe try, if you have a vegetable garden, for example, try new vegetables out and see how they work. And something that has helped me a lot is to have a community that can help you also if you have questions. And here at DW, there are actually many people that have either allotments or vegetable gardens or gardens at home and actually talking to them and saying, look, I don't know what's happening to my tomatoes this year or how did you do with your pumpkins or what do you do with all the other vegetables that you have or how do you compost? It's nice to feel that you're not alone in that, in that passion as well. Well, on that note, Thomas, I'm going to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and all the best for a new gardening year.
Merry Christmas to you too. And next time you're in Berlin, you're more than welcome to visit me in the garden and hopefully you'll be able to see some of my tomatoes. Wow, well, there's an offer that I certainly wasn't expecting. Um, I think I better swiftly move on, actually, before I get myself into trouble. Um, somebody that I can always count on to keep me in line is our Brussels correspondent, Terry Schultz. I'll give her a go, although I'm not actually sure she's going to pick up, to be honest, because I've been trying for a while. Um, let's see if I get any luck this time. Hello? Hello, Terry. I've caught you. Kate, I am in the middle of <laughs> editing my year-ender story on how the EU counters disinformation. I'd actually got the feeling that you might have been avoiding me a bit. <laughs> I was avoiding you a bit. I don't like to talk about personal things. <laughs> I only talk about news and I never avoid you. I never avoid you. So yes, you detected that correctly. <laughs> uh, I was like, nope, I'm busy. Very busy, Kate. <laughs> Well, this, it was quite a contrast because when, whenever I contact you about anything, I mean, anything, anything <laughs> remotely sort of work related, then you're, you're like on it like a flash. I mean, to the, to the, <laughs> to the extent of sending me voicemails from the cockpit of a NATO airplane, which was one of my highlights of this, this year. True. Filing at 4am as if needed, always. <laughs> what do you do when you kick back and, and relax? So, I mean, I do, I am a workaholic and I do work a lot. My genuine top leisure time activity is reading the news. I love it. Like the stories that I don't get to read during the day, I think, okay, when I'm done with my work, whatever I have to write that day, I can read this for fun. And I know that sounds really boring to people, but if you're truly engrossed in the news and if truly your interest and your your passion is finding out what's happening in the world, there is no greater luxury than, than reading stories that you don't need to write about. So this is really what I do. But I do have this one little obsession that if I'm like waiting in the dentist office, which I just was this week, unfortunately, and, you know, and I'm on my phone and I don't, you know, I can't write and I can't look at things properly. I will do this silly thing that I would not advise other people to do seriously. And that is I look on a website on Facebook where they make false images there's this guy who you know he would he would make joke requests people would send him photos and say hey can you get rid of um the lady picking up trash in the background and he would then put the lady picking up trash in the foreground or something like this you know as a joke james friedman yes exactly and i loved him he i just couldn't get over how clever he was but there is this other site on facebook and it's called photoshop help edits and requests and these are like good-natured people who are good at this stuff I mean, possibly as good as him, but it, it's people who have genuine requests like, oh, my father died last year and I would just love if we could, you know, update this photo of him that's tattered and torn or discolored or, you know, blurred. And somehow these magicians with photos, they bring back the essence of these photos. They make them vibrant. They bring people alive. A lot of these are really requests from people who have lost relatives and, and want to see them again sort of in all their glory. And and they help them. And I mean, really, there's there are very few times that I've looked at it where people are doing anything mean-spirited or, or even making fun of them because most of their requests are, are genuine calls for help, sort of emotional help. I love looking at this. I love looking at how good people are at manipulating images in this case 
you know, for the betterment of, of the person who's asking. But as you know, Kate, I also work on uh, countering this kind of manipulation um, for evil purposes. Yeah, I mean, you, what you're describing sounds so wholesome, but I mean, the, the, there's a there's a flip side, isn't there? In instead of a, an age of fake news and, and everything, and you're involved in DW's lie detectors project, aren't you? It's not a DW program, um, but there are a lot of DW people who who are volunteers with this program. It's called Lie Detectors, and it's actually an independent journalist-led organization which brings journalists into classrooms of uh, students as young as. 10, 11, 12, and, and another group at 15, 16, and we teach them, basically what we're trying to do is make healthy skeptics out of them, looking at news items, looking at photos, and saying, wait a minute, that doesn't look right, I'm not going to forward it, because we see so much disinformation being spread through teens, coming from, you know, the Kremlin, coming from the Chinese government, coming from sources that want to literally destabilize society, and they perceive correctly that teens are a really... um, easy community because they're constantly looking on Instagram, forwarding things. They don't really care if it's real or not, They, if, as long as it's funny. And so one of the things I do as often as I can is go teach kids literally how to do reverse image search. So while I'm saying, oh, I love these faked photos, I also would like to put out a plug for these um, online uh, tools that can help you find out if this is a fake image. Honestly, this is not why I rang you up, but I've got some kids who are coming up to that first age bracket, the sort of 10, 11, 12 age bracket. And um, this is so useful. So reverse image search. I I just go Google. How do I do it? Uh Google reverse image search and you can put a URL in there if it's just a photo or you can upload a photo and you can teach your kids and, and your kids are young enough. Mine are already, you know, apathetic teens, but but we really want kids as young as yours, Kate, to learn how to do this because then you teach them that it's a game and that it's fun to figure out if this is a fake image. And then, of course, you say, all right, you would never forward that to your friends. That's what we try to do with the younger students is try to make them healthy news consumers and to trust their gut when something doesn't look real. Listen, that, that I, I don't want to keep you for long, Terry, because I know that you've got a, a piece actually on um, disinformation. On to get disinformation. To. That's correct. <laughs> Did you plan that? No, but you caught me just at that moment. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but listen, I just before I go, I just had to ask after your cat because last year, I know around Christmas time, you adopted a Ukrainian cat. How's the cat doing? This is exactly true. My darling Sisu, she still runs the universe. She um, she has more personality than, I mean, I've probably had 20 or 30 cats in my life because I was a rescuer and she has the personality of all of them in one. So I remain so grateful that she found her way to me. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, listen, Terry, um, we wish you all the very, very best for a very happy Christmas. And um, yeah, I shall I shall think of you now every time that I use Google reverse image. Let me know how the kids like it. You could give them as a Christmas gift experience. We're going to learn how to do reverse image. That's the kind of awful mom I am. <laughs> do better, Kate, do better. All the best to our listeners also for 2024. I'll definitely be back with some stories. Well, there certainly will be lots of stories for Terry to cover in 2024, since it is, of course, European Elections Year. To make sure that you don't miss any of our coverage, do make sure that you're subscribed to our podcast on whichever platform you use. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe.
so far with our Christmas ring round, we have been scrupulously fair. Nobody has been asked twice. Everybody's had just one bite of the festive cherry, or should that be sugar plum? I am, however, about to make an exception, and that is for our Dutch-born Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss. The reason being that he is just such a consummate showman that I can't resist the temptation to ring out the year to the sound of his ebullient jazz crooning. So here goes. Hello, Stefan Boss speaking. Good morning. Hello, Stefan Boss. <laughs> Stefan Boss in, in Amsterdam or Stefan Boss in Budapest? I feel like I feel like you've been everywhere this year. No, no, I'm in the Netherlands. So is this going to be a Dutch Christmas for you then? Yes, it is uh, actually going to be a Dutch Christmas, which is a little bit different than uh, usually when I'm in um, Budapest in Hungary. But it's also very interesting to see uh, it uh, this time uh, around in uh, in the Netherlands, especially after the uh, recent elections and, uh, you know, how it is going uh, and how people come together is uh, still uh, nice to see, I think. So I very much want to stay in Christmas mode. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's going to be a busman's holiday, otherwise isn't it? we're just going to end up talking politics. So, Stefan, you're back by popular request. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, last year, last year you sang Fly Me to the Moon um, down the phone to me and um, everyone in the studio was just sort of swooning. <laughs> so, yeah, we had to have you back. Is the, are the Gypsy Jazz Clubs, are they still a big part of your life? Because I, I know that your main sort of passion is hanging out in the Gypsy Jazz Clubs of Budapest doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it is uh, still a part of my life. I uh, also discovered recently uh, a club, it's called the Budapest Jazz Club, where there are amazing uh, jam sessions as well. So uh, I had the opportunity... But Stefan, you sent me a WhatsApp voice recording. Is that where this came from? Uh, well, actually, that was from the Budapest Jazz uh, Club. That was from the jam session. Um, you know, they came around the table and then we... It was an impromptu um, concert. I was in the car with my husband when I got that message from you. And I stuff, you know, I, I saw it's going to be a work message. So I, I clicked on it. And then suddenly there was this sort of beautiful sort of Frank Sinatra rendition. And my, my husband was like, who, who is that? <laughs> Yeah, no, but I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a big fun. It's a big fun to do. And also what you have here, because there is some connection, I would say, between... Um, Hungary and uh, the Netherlands, especially also, you know, if you see some of the, the, the jazz. Uh, is and this, also... is, do I sense a segue coming? Are you trying to do a link here? Have you got something planned? <laughs> there, well, what is planned actually is, well, you know, there is, um, well, what is really amazing, I think, is there is um, the port city of Rotterdam, you know, where there are so many different cultures are coming together. And the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, there may have been um, recently uh, a right-wing party becoming number one. But that city, that port city, is led by a Moroccan mayor already for many, many years. And really uh, what is interesting, I think, about the city of Rotterdam, that the people come together, uh, also especially around uh, Christmas. And there is actually uh, a song uh, which uh, I think is very popular in uh, Rotterdam, but it's also very jazzy. And... um, it is, uh, you know, about the Christmas in uh, in, in Rotterdam, and it was uh, actually uh, first song by um, he, his name is Lee Towers. Uh, actually, he's a Rotterdam musician. Would you give us a taster of it, Stefan? <laughs> okay, let me just see if it's uh, if it's possible. Uh, let me just see if it works here. So, one second. Ha <laughs> 
kaart van kerstkaart op de voordeurmat. E van Euromast, de piek van onze stad. De R van Rotte, waar geen ijs op glijdt. De S van het stadhuis verlicht en de T van witte trouwerij. Ja, kerst in Rotterdam is feest in huis. Eventjes geen haast, we blijven met z'n allen thuis. Een boom prachtig versierd en de tafel mooi gedekt. En met een sneeuwbui wordt het allemaal perfect. Now what Stefan Bos simply could not have known is that the port of Rotterdam is actually my very own gateway to Christmas, since it is from there that I am due to take the night ferry over to England to spend time with family over the holidays. A massive thanks to all our wonderful correspondents and contributors to this show and also throughout the year. Also to our listeners, both new and old, and to our sound engineers. This week, we were helped by Thomas Schmidt. Also, of course, Mrs. Inside Europe herself, our senior producer, Helen Sini. I'm Kate Laycock. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. De S van snel nog eventjes naar de T van Toto toe. Oh, kerst met jou in Rotterdam mislopen in de wind. Een bakkie doen in het café als de kou het heeft verdrinkt. De mooiste tijd van heel het jaar, dat blijft de kerst voor mij. Maar dan wel in Rotterdam met jou erbij, my baby. Maar dan wel in Rotterdam met jou erbij. Maar dan wel in Rotterdam met jou erbij.